You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I got a job at Tower Records because that's the only place I could get a job with my f***ing haircut. That is the truth. <laughs> the largest record store in the universe is Tower Records. Tower Records had everything. They were like friends. If you came into town, you went to Tower Records. Tower was the center of it all. San Francisco. New York. Japan. London. Revenues of a billion dollars. The whole thing became a phenomenon. Tower was like the place to work at. We had no dress code. There was always a party atmosphere. And even if you threw up, you had to show up. You were part of his family. That was the fun part. Russ Solomon, Tower Records was what he did. I don't think he thought he could do any wrong. A perfect storm of events was developing. There was no need for kids to even go in a record store to get their music. When the banks came in, we knew that things were going to change. It's the end of an icon. Fought, but he basically had to cut the heart out of the company. Somebody was taking it away from us. The bank said, we don't need a visionary. It defined the generation. It was really the statement of that time. To be able to go into a store where there was people that knew music, it's just a missing part of our society now. I don't really understand why it's gone. We just happened to be at that right place at the right time. You want to call that luck? We call it luck. What would you call it? Luck. <laughs> Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is the cultural gutters, Carol Borden. Hey, Mike. Hi, everybody. On this episode, we're talking about the 2015 documentary directed by Colin Hanks, All Things Must Pass, The Rise and Fall of Tower Records. As the title implies, the film looks at the American institution of Tower Records, whose too-big-too-soon rise and crashing fall in the digital age exemplify the death of a brick-and-mortar store that was more than just a store. It was something of a way of life. Now, Carol, were you much of a record shopper in your day? I did some damage. I was a young punkling. I still have a lot of cassettes somewhere, a lot of mixtapes, stuff like that, from little rec- record stores in southwest Michigan. Were you in southeast Michigan when Tower was still around? No. I experienced Tower pretty late in life when I was at grad school in Toronto, and they had a store at uh, Queen & Young, I think. Unfortunately, by the time they came to Toronto... Um, places like HMV had already stolen a lot of their ideas or borrowed their innovations. So I think it was less exciting for me, and I had already found other places to get hard-to-find books and scenes and stuff like that. But it was still neat to go to. I first experienced Tower Records through the Piccadilly Circus Store in London. And when I was 17, and I hope I haven't told this story too many times on the show before, but when I was 17, I somehow convinced my parents to send me, it wasn't an exchange program, but it was some sort of like educational program where they sent me over to England for four weeks. I still kind of credit that trip as really kind of a defining moment in my life because here's this like know nothing white guy from the Midwest being plunked into downtown London and having to figure it out, you know, like showing up at Heathrow and how do I get to Tolworth, England and how do I get from Tolworth now to Waterloo Station and just all those kind of things. And I spent a lot of hours at that Tower Records and Piccadilly Circus. And then after that, I kind of would when i would go to new cities that would have tower i would always try to check those out and see what the record stores were like so i was really thrilled when tower came to ann arbor probably i want to say that they were probably open before i got there but they were definitely around in the early 90s and it was one of those places that i would just kind of go to and kill time 
as often as possible. Yeah, it was kind of like a little home away from home. So when I would go to Toronto, I would go to the tower there. When I went to New York, I would go to the tower there. So it was really kind of neat for me in this documentary, seeing them grow from this little store into what it eventually became, which was kind of a port in every city kind of thing. And just seeing, like when they talked about where they were building the store in New York, I was like, I've been there before. And when they would show some of the other stores, I'm like, I've been there before too. So it was a lot of fun. That's very cool. So what did you think of the movie? I liked it quite a bit. I enjoyed seeing that same arc from like, it's neat that something that was a little soda fountain, whereas dad's like, Oh, we'll sell the used jukebox records to the kids. They seem to like that becomes this thing that you can go to any city in the world and and have a similar experience and this was before like for me it was before things like borders or barnes and noble definitely before things like best buy and those kind of things so it was really very important for me to have that kind of uh, a place where I could also find different things. It wasn't like they were cookie cutters either. It wasn't like every store stocked the same stuff. And each one seemed to really have its own flavor to it. And it was really, you know, as I'm sure you know, being a record buyer or a cassette buyer, it's all about the browsing and the discovery and having things like those listening stations when CDs were kind of becoming big and what they stocked was different from store to store. It was really cool for me to go in there and be like, Oh, Hey, I've never seen this thing before. Do you remember some of the differences from, from the various stores that you went to? Well, obviously the, the artwork was very different, which I'm glad that they spent a few minutes talking about the artwork in the film. Um, the kind of, uh, building out of the record covers and stuff in some stores it felt like well obviously when i was in england they're not imports over there you know and here i am like looking i actually when i went over to england a friend of mine andy feudner had given me a list of all these rare smiths 12 inches that he couldn't find so i'm going through the bin and i've got my little list and i'm just like oh yep found this one found this one found this one you know and of course i'm looking for like pil and Susie and the banshees and bauhaus and stuff and it's just like yeah i've never seen this before i've never seen that so that was great and then just seeing you know like the the new york store obviously had um, more of a new york centric feel to it i don't i can't say that the ann arbor store had a really Ann Arbor-centric feel to it. I do have to say, by the time I ended up, there was one in downtown Birmingham at just one block north of 15 Mile in Old Woodward. And by the time that one came about, it really felt like kind of the last hurrah for Tower, because it was about... Because it wasn't there when I was working in downtown Birmingham. I would have been working about like half a block from there. So I would have been there every day had it been there when I was there. So it probably didn't even open until 98, 99. And we both know by that time, like Napster had kind of come on the scene and file sharing had come on the scene. And so it really felt like kind of like, hey, we're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic kind of thing. And you really hoped that this store would last and and prosper. But there was also, by that time, there's a huge Borders about a block away. There was a, a Barnes & Noble a few miles away. So it just felt like it wasn't destined to survive. And that's the thing about this documentary that I like so much is seeing the rise and the fall, though I have to say that the fall really made me sad because of those great times that I had at Tower and because of that whole browsing culture. Yeah, you can see like how it affected their relationships too with each other. I think it was really sad to see the, how Russ Solomon was actually one of those people who was a visionary where now there's so many people who give themselves that title and then they get monies and position and stuff like that. But he had, he had this idea that he wanted to make happen and he was lucky enough to find an accountant who could help him make it happen and be functional and successful. And it's just so sad when you see the betrayal he has once they have the, the accountant that's helped them make this happen leave and they get like a regular accountant and he's just like, no, you can't do any of this. No, you can't do any of this. And then they start going into bankruptcy and he starts losing stores and losing all the things that made it special to him. 
Uh, it's yeah. just heartbreaking to see like that that just even that little sense of betrayal he has about it. And him being such a like an empowering boss, you know, just oh, if you want to do something, go ahead and do it. I read an interview recently on um, I read something on on his blog. He's doing this whole uh, series of interviews with old zinesters. And he interviewed, is it Doug Biggert, the guy who ran the Tower Records zine stuff and magazine stuff for a lot of years. And he echoed that same thing that the documentary has where it was like, I want to do this, and nobody questioned it. It was like, it's that old, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And he just did it and basically created this whole new revenue stream for Tower, but at the same time he created this whole great thing of this exchange of ideas because he really helped bring zine culture into mainstream culture and really helped kind of, you know, let people find stuff in a, a much more readily available place because at least, um, you know, in, well, growing up down river, there was nothing like that. And, uh, even in Ann Arbor, there really wasn't that many great places where you could go and find zines. Like, even though they have some fantastic bookstores in Ann Arbor, or at least they used to, I know some of them have closed down. I think like, um, uh, what was the one at, uh, Liberty and state street? I don't think that's there anymore. And I'm, I know Don Treader still around, but there's a few more that have kind of closed down over the years. You couldn't find zines anywhere, but you could find them at tower. Like I participated in the zine scene in Toronto and I got a lot, again, Tower came in somewhere between 98 and 2000, so it came in fairly late, and it wasn't supporting. I think that Tower was trying hard to support local zines, but they were pushing a lot more magazine-type zines, you know, that were glossies. But they really helped move zines around the country so that you could discover things from other cities that you hadn't even had any idea that they existed, let alone stuff that you checked off in fact sheet five that you wanted to get. Well, yeah, at least with Toronto, you know, I'm sure that there were other places, but I know for me, I used to sell through um, suspect video and there were a couple other bookstores. There was one that, Oh man, it was over at, there's an anarchist one in the anarchist bookstore in Kensington market. And there was one over on Queen Street, and I can't remember what cross street it was, but unfortunately, last time I went up there, they're not there anymore, and they were a fantastic bookstore. Yeah, so Queen Street is different now. One of my best memories in college is one of my roommates coming home giving me a copy of this scene called Asian Eye. Yeah. Okay, you know Asian Eye? Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Asian Eye from Toronto compiled by Colin Geddes, who has been the programmer for the Midnight Movie Series for, I don't know, probably going on a decade or more now. And a swell fellow. Very swell fellow. And yeah, my housemate was just like, hey, I saw this, I thought you would like it. And it was the first issue of Asian Eye. I think he only ever did two issues, but it just blew the top off my head, man. Just, I couldn't believe this. This was where I first found out about Chinese hopping vampires. There were so many great things about Jackie Chan in here. And it's before the internet. You know, we're talking like 91, 92, something like that. I think it was 92. And just reading about all these films, I couldn't believe. You know, it just, it was amazing. And that for me is the thing that I always try to achieve. Like, even with this podcast, the thing that I'm always trying to achieve is somebody somewhere you know, in bumfuck Iowa or whatever, has no idea about Virchitlova or something. And to be able to introduce somebody to something like that, I, I'm going to feel good at the end of the day. And that really comes from that experience with Asian Eye and getting something this, you know, plopped in my lap and just going, oh my God, I've never heard of any of this stuff. Wow. I didn't know that. It's amazing. I can do you one better too when it comes to this story. A few months later, I go to Toronto, and I remember reading in Asian Eye about the Golden Classics movie theater. So I I find it. I go to the Golden Classics. They're showing a a Jet Li film, and I think a Jackie Chan film, but for sure a Jet Li film. It was 
kind of like the knockoff version of Moscow and the Hudson. It was Jet Li comes over with a bunch of acrobats. I was probably there. I go in, I go up to the guy at the ticket counter, and I'm just like, oh, man, I'm so glad to be here. This is amazing. You know, I read about this in this zine, and this friend of mine got this for me in college, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just talking a mile a minute, I'm sure. And the guy who's selling tickets just, like, puts out his hand, and he's like, Colin Geddes, nice to meet you. That's actually where I met Colin, but I didn't have, like, the whole Asian eye experience I had. The Colin is the guy selling tickets at um, the Golden Classics. Oh, Colin works at Suspect, too. Talk about a true film fan, you know? They put up, um, like, your, they had some, I don't know if you were distributing them or what, but they had a videotape of Who Do You Think You're Fooling? That yes. they had, like, put up in a prominent place for people to watch. So I have, like, this reverse story of, like, wow, this is a really great video. Who is this Mike White guy? God, it's such a small world, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, I mean, really, I do have to thank Colin for really kind of inspiring me with the zine bug between Colin and my friend Leon. And Leon did a a zine, he did a comic called Stewie, and he was the one who introduced me to Fact Sheet 5. And of course, that was another thing where I was just like, oh my God, here's a listing of all these things. And I'm just like, I want to read everything. And so for me, Tower was such the entree into so many amazing zines, amazing books, amazing records, VHS tapes. I don't think I ever bought a DVD there. That kind of puts a a point on where I stopped kind of shopping at Tower. (laughs) I definitely bought a lot of books and a lot of records there and just a ton of magazines and zines. And that was the other thing, too, is just the magazines, the real live magazines that were out there and just the variety. And, you know, it was like just kind of amazing to see some of the crazy like tattoo magazines that they would have. And and this is before tattoos were like, you know, you walk down the street and you see somebody with the whole arm sleeve. This was like when tattoos were still pretty like taboo almost. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. They had Boing Boing before Boing Boing was a website. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This whole documentary just captures so much of a, a crazy era for me. And of course, you know, this stuff predates me by quite a bit. But, you know, when I kind of come into the story, which unfortunately is towards the tail end, it's just like, oh, wow. You know, this it brings back a flood of memories really makes me appreciate stuff and then makes me incredibly sad that it's not around anymore. Yeah. Well, the other thing I was thinking while you were talking is um, so much of this experience you're talking about is exactly the experience that they wanted people to have and that they worked hard to make and that they could have like a huge multinational chain store of huge, huge stores with, you know, thousands and thousands of records and hundreds of books and hundreds of magazines and DVDs and all that, and still have people have this experience that they don't have in Meyer, they don't have in Walmart, or they don't have in Borders, or is just remarkable. And that was the thing, too, when I got into Tower Records, when Cashews de Cinemart broke through and got in there, that was another just incredible experience for me. And by that time, I don't think that Doug Biggert was still working there, or maybe he was, but I dealt with this guy, Clint Johns. And Clint was amazing. And that first conversation I had with him just really blew the doors off. And he's like, okay, well, you know, I think what I'll do is I'll take, and it was something like 200 zines or something, which to me was just this huge amount. And then he starts talking out loud about where he's going to put them. And he's just like, okay, well, you know, I think I'll send three to Cleveland and a couple to um, uh, Jerusalem or a couple in the Kyoto store. And he's just like listing off all this stuff. And I'm just like, holy shit, I'm going to be global now. And, And then to think oh my God, my zine is going to that Piccadilly Circus store. You know, like it was like this weird, like time travel thing where it was like, here I was in 1989 at that store. And now in 1999 or 97, now my, my work is going to be in that same store. 
and they were the most fair when it came to like returns and paying on time and all that kind of stuff which you would think uh, like at that point they were kind of becoming like a little too big for their britches I think but they were still such a like a homespun type operation in a lot of ways and they were the ones where it was just like okay well if we if you want whole returns you're going to get a little bit less you know when we pay you but if you want we can just send you back the covers so you know that we didn't sell these and stuff and just being so fair and so open about everything i couldn't believe it yeah well that's especially amazing in the zine world oh yeah god it's crooked but it's just so scrappy yeah i i always count myself lucky that i i was not one of the people who was fucked over by desert moon because i know a lot of people were but fortunately they always i don't know what it was i must have been born under a lucky star or something but i always got paid on time got paid the right amount and when they closed their doors i think i was fortunate to not be publishing an issue right around that time you know when you only do it like once or twice every you know year or two (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it, you have those long periods of time. So I think I missed the window of when they kind of closed their doors and kept a lot of people's money. It made me really happy to see that it's still working in Japan. Yes. When Ross goes to Japan, that was just so great. And now they're working on uh, reformatting the Sunset Strip store, at least for one screening of the movie. Which is great for me because, okay, God, I feel like this is like the Mike White show going on here right now. But for me, I was so happy to hear about the Sunset Strip Store because, as I'm sure you know, I'm a huge fan of Black Shampoo. And when Mr. Jonathan is walking into his salon, in the background you can see the Sunset Strip Tower Records. By having that as a landmark, I was actually able to use Google Maps a few years ago and plot out and find exactly where Mr. Jonathan's salon would have been. (laughs) You need to share that. And you can do like the Google Street View and everything. I'm just like, that's pretty much right around where Mr. Jonathan's salon would have been. Awesome. At least that little sign on the outside, and then he walks into the movie set. But at least I had that moment. That's really amazing. Amazing or pathetic? I'm not sure which. I think you should choose to have it be amazing. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) All right, so let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with one of the producers of All Things Must Pass, Sean M. Stewart. My name is Sean Stewart. Uh, I'm the producer of uh, All Things Must Pass. I'm uh, producing partners with Colin Hanks uh, at our uh, shingle company name. And how did you get into the business? In 96, I came down to Los Angeles and uh, started to attend USC and went to film school. I was lucky enough to go to film school at USC and got my, my degree in cinema over there and basically uh, ran, a, ran a gauntlet and a path like pretty much everybody in this town uh, that took me to Lionsgate and uh, into my own uh, business uh, as a producer and, and started a company with Colin about four years ago. and. Um, that's a little top line there on, on how I got into all of this madness. Now, were you primarily producing, uh, documentaries or just all kinds of things or what was kind of your, your forte? When I started in 2005 with two other, uh, producing partners, we launched a network over at direct TV called the one-on-one network. Uh, I actually was there for about five and a half years. I ran the network. I was the uh, co-creative director and head of operations over at the 101 network on DirecTV. It's now called the Audience Network. Uh, we produced, you know, on-air promo, original programming. Uh, we licensed a lot of programming when we were there. Um, and then after that, I really kind of moved a lot, a lot more into the into the doc space, uh, the television doc space. Did some stuff with CNBC. Uh, Colin and I have done a handful of projects with ESPN Films on their 30 for 30 brand and also their 538 brand with Nate Silver. And then from there, we've the whole time been working on this passion project, All Things Must Pass. How did you and Colin meet? (laughs) Colin and I met at the age of 13. I actually uh, came running into our local swim club, had a a nice uh, nice run-in with one of the neighborhood bullies and was trying to evade him and ran into uh, our local swim club where Colin was sitting there with a few other people I knew. And that was was actually our first real encounter. It's a a little Sandlot story there for you. And how did you guys decide to work together then? 
We talked for years about starting a business. Uh, we always talked about just, you know, finding that right time to kind of embark into that, you know, that chapter of our friendship. Um, you know, we've, I think that the things lined up well um, for me post direct TV with us already kind of having this idea of this tower documentary under our belt. And when I left, we decided to, uh, to make it formal and, and start to build our, build a business. Now, did you grow up with tower? I did. I did. I grew up in Sacramento, uh, with Colin. Um, tower was a, was a staple of our lives by that point. I think, you know, it was cassettes and CDs that were the mainstay. My father handed me a, a stack of records when I was about 13 years old. I think, majority of them were Beach Boys, Elton John, and even some reggae. And I remember that was kind of my first experience with vinyl. But for us in Tower Records, Colin and I, we'd, we'd spend you know quite a bit of time there uh, at the, the original store actually on Broadway and Watt Avenue, the two original stores in Sacramento, you know, sifting the racks and, and finding music and uh, even buying concert tickets there. They had a thing back then called Ticketron, where you could go in and buy uh, uh, tickets, and they'd spit them out right there for you. So that was, uh, you know, one of those great benchmarks for us of, of what Tower Records brought and kind of the evolution of the company. So say you're, I don't know, 18 years old and you're going to Tower Records. How often would you go, and how much money do you think you would spend a month at Tower so when I was 18, I was already down here in L.A., and we actually, both Colin and I actually, spent a lot more time, it seemed, down in the Tower Records in Marina Del Rey. You know, there were so many of them at that point. But I think I probably spent in the realm of, you know, when you're 18, money's limited, money's hard to come by. So I think I probably only spent 60 you know, $60 a month max. I mean, that was... There were limited funds at that point in life for, for anything, let alone, um, you know, buying buying records at the prices they were selling them. That's still pretty good. 60 bucks a month when you're 18 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's, you know, when it's a priority, it's what you do, right? And when it's something that moves you, when it's something that inspires you, and it's something you're into, which for both Colin and I, it really was. Even him more than I. Uh, he's definitely a much bigger music file than I am. Why the documentary, what kind of inspired you guys to put this together? I think it was multifold. I mean, for me, there's a there's an element of, of, of major civic pride here. We're from a city that, you know, very few things have been founded in. We, we realized that doing a documentary on Shakey's Pizza probably wasn't the best idea. You know, when Colin told me the story, I was in New York. It was 2007. Or we were out to dinner with our wives. Uh, at that point, it was his wife was his girlfriend. And, you know, he turned to me and said, you know, I've got a project I want to talk to you about. Uh, I was talking to a good friend of ours from Sacramento, and we're talking about and kind of bemoaning the loss of Tower Records. And, you know, she said to me, I just can't believe it was all started in the 1940s on a shelf in the back of a pharmacy. And Colin turned to me, he's like, I I think if it started that small in 1940, was a billion dollar company in 2000, and six years later went bankrupt. I'm sure there's a documentary here. We, we've got to meet the guy. We've got to go find this guy, Russ Solomon, and, and hear what he has to say and, and see if there, if there really is something worth exploring. How easy or difficult was it to find Russ Solomon? Was he really kind of the linchpin for you? If you didn't have Solomon, you didn't have a doc? Well, I think that's kind of the key component of all documentary filmmaking in general. If you don't have a willing participant, it's, not, it's, it's often not worth your while. Unless it's an expose where you're trying to expose something someone's done, you really, really need a willing participant that's going to let you in, that's going to tell the stories, that's going to give you the context and the background. Uh, It always helps that that person is engaging and interesting and fun. And I think within 10 minutes of talking with Russ, we realized he was all of that. It was six months after that, as all these things seemed to go, Russ had in common a dentist with a friend of ours. So we used the dentist to broker the meat. Um, I love telling that story. Using a dentist to broker a meat is always a great way to, to, to phrase anything or, or position anything. Um, so we, yeah, we, we, uh, we went and met with Russ and, um, it was, I think probably in April of, of 2008. And I think within 10 minutes of talking to him, Colin and I were just looking at each other, you know, slack jawed and wide eyed, realizing we'd stumbled onto something really incredible. Now, was he kind of your key for a lot of the other participants in the documentary? Absolutely. I mean, for a guy to spend his entire life and make this thing his baby, you really want to turn to him and say, who are the people we should talk to? And then from there, you expand that a little further and get some other voices that may or may not be 
in line with their vision, which we did. But for the most part, you know, he's really going to tell he helped tell us whom we needed to, to interface with the people that were there that saw it, that lived it, that experienced it, that had their hearts broken, um, that spent 30, 40 years of their lives running this company, knew nothing else. And then it was just gone, which, you know, I think in the world we live in right now, it's so identifiable for so many people. And I think there's such a great human element in that regard that this is bigger than a music doc for me. And there was a moment where we realized it in one of our interviews when a, when a 60 year old man, not Russ, but when one of the interviewees is moved to tears, just reminiscing about what his life accomplishment was with this business. You as a filmmaker sitting on the other side of that camera, um, I mean, it, it floors you. If you really realize what these people are are giving you, you realize what you've been instilled with, and you realize how careful you have to be with what you've been given from them, respectfully to to tell their story. Yeah, that moment is such a gift. When I was watching that, I was I was right there with you. I was floored as well. Just it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty incredible. I mean. There are, I, I still, honestly, I still well up um, in, in a couple places in the movie. Um, it's, I've seen the movie, you know, 300 times and it's still, it moves me. I think that it, some of the emotions that these people are feeling are so identifiable. We've all been there. It really does. It, it, it grabs you. You said you saw it almost 300 times, and I know a lot of that was probably in the editing process. How do you approach a project like this, which could have the scope of a Ken Burns-like documentary and take it down to something relatively bite-sized for an audience to sit through in one sitting? We have an incredible team. Our editor, Darren Roberts, is just an incredible talent. He sat with us in the edit, in post-production, and worked with Colin and I, and we, we really built out the entire arc of the film. This is after we finished all the interviews. A huge board of cards that, that really broke down all the acts and where we wanted to go with this and where we thought the story you know, best fit uh, a narrative that got you everything you wanted, everything you needed without you know, finding any, any dead spots. And our writer, Stephen Leckhart, who was really, really instrumental in helping us kind of find the nuances in the story, and our executive producer, Glenn Zipper, we, we really had a, a, an incredible team. You know, and it's funny, I, you know, art imitating life, we really learned a lot from Russ. I think I learned a lot from Russ in this filmmaking process. Russ talks a lot about basically allowing people to, you know, this Tom Sawyer theory of, of management, letting people paint the fence. So Russ would sit back and he would empower people to make tough decisions and, and he would hire people he trusted and people he enjoyed and let them make decisions that really helped this company grow. And it was incredible to talk to him about it because he's the most modest human being you'll ever meet. He empowered these people, gives them all the credit. Uh, and yet what he was able to accomplish is, is, you know, frankly, astounding. There are so many moments where I was just taken aback in the film. One of the things that I really thought you guys did very well speaking of moving the the narrative along as you go through this is the use of the music with this which is so important for tower records you know the tower Records story what was that like though because those are big songs you're using when it comes to this yeah i mean it's you know if anything that was the, one of the more stressful conversations colin and i had for the entire seven years when we were we were talking and making this movie you're doing a movie that is, in our opinion, about the quintessential record store. This is the place that, you know, nine out of ten people I bump into have a story they tell about their first time at Tower Records or this thing that happened to them or how this company moved them. And this is a company that had a catalog that was so deep and so rich and so interesting with so many incredible people that worked there that we knew that, you know, for us to not run the spectrum of genres to not plant a flag in every genre and every era as we went through it would, would be a disservice to a movie like this. So, you know, we really set out to find a country track and to find a hip hop track and to find a rock and roll track and to find some electronic music and to really give people every aisle in the tower records that they would walk into, including soundtrack to help them go on an adventure visually 
and, you know, storytelling wise, and also, you know, through this music to bring them back to every, every era that this company was, was a part of. So how did you secure the rights for these? We started off with something we thought was a little more obtainable than the rest. Um, obviously, we knew that we wanted to title the movie All Things Must Pass. Um, there is something so poetic about the secular you know, ways of, of life uh, as it relates to you know, businesses and relationships and, 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 and your work. And we knew that, that All Things Must Pass could be a real banner for us to, to really put this movie under. So we reached out first and foremost to Olivia Harrison. Colin reached out to her, shared the movie with her, a rough cut of it. And we asked her to, to consider letting us use the song for the film. And, and we got lucky. She, she enjoyed the movie. She has her own memories of, of Tower New York. And when we heard that and she saw the movie, she immediately wanted to, to help us out. And we were able to use that as kind of our starting point. And from there, you know, you, you, go, to, you go to these other musicians. And, and magically, I think for us, this is a beloved company that meant so much to so many of these musicians that when we said, hey, we're telling the story of Tower Records, we're telling the story of the music industry through Tower Records, through the prism of Tower Records, they all very much supported the idea and, and really wanted to be a part of it and lend their music and their voice to this company that had done so much for, for everyone. Now, you talked to so many of the people that were part of Tower Records and then so many of the people that were fans of Tower Records that ended up either becoming musicians or who were musicians in the first place. How did you go about securing folks like the Elton Johns, the Bruce Springsteens, Dave Grohls, those kind of folks? You know, it was from the get go, Colin really, as the director on this film, had had two lines in the sand he drew. Um, one was this movie was not going to be driven by voiceover. Uh, and number two, we were not going to have a 30 second montage at the top of the movie where we showed you 600 celebrities telling you why this thing was important. So we were very, very cautious to really work hard and search out and dig up the music artists that really had a connective tissue to this company and, and, and record industry individuals as well. Um, you know, David Geffen, he was this guy owned Sunset Strip. I mean, he was he was such a big player. And we knew that he spent three, four days a week in Tower Records checking on his artist records, but also buying the competition's records. And and, you know, not just the competition, but, you know, was a fan of music and would sit there and and buy tons and tons of music. We knew Elton. They used to open the store early for him. Like he was it didn't matter if he was in Atlanta, New York or L.A., the guy loved to be in Tower Records. He would buy multiple versions and send them to his different homes. And I, we've got a quote that didn't make the movie where Elton said that buying records at Tower was better than the best sex ever. It was incredible to see someone like him and how much this place meant to him. Same thing with with uh, with Dave Grohl. I mean, he was an employee. He it was he was a record store employee at Tower. Uh, and Bruce Springsteen, you know, he, we knew that he and, and, and his New York crew spent a lot of time at the New York Tower store. But when he came to L.A., he also always hit that store up as well. So we were really cautious about the people we approached. We were very meticulous about making sure that everyone we approached had a voice that made sense for this documentary. And it wasn't just a one line. Yeah, it's a great store. Uh, it meant a lot to me. And, you know, I, I, uh, I shopped there a handful of times. These were people that it was that are, that are passionate and really invested in this company. I can't really think of too many other documentaries off the top of my head where Bruce Springsteen comes off as just so natural and friendly and just, you know, he just seems so genuine in this and just seems like such a fan. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty incredible. I think, I think, when he was really starting to kind of, you know, catch flight with his career, uh, Tower Sunset was as well. So I think, I think that Tower for the, a lot of its, a lot of its existence, uh, I think Tower for a lot of its existence, whether it was Sacramento uh, during the Beach Boys era or San Francisco during the Summer of Love or the, the early 70s in L.A., they just happened to be at that right place, the right time. And I think a lot of these artists, 
there was a there was a similar trajectory with their careers and this company coming into the into the fold. Now I know with the whole idea of DVD extras, those kind of things, you know, the idea of killing some of your babies and taking out some of those favorite stories, favorite lines, those kind of things. They, they're a little less painful than they used to be. But still, what were some of the moments that you really just kind of, you know, had that twinge about when you had to make that decision to get rid of a scene or a storyline that just really meant a lot to you? I mean, there were, you know, God bless DVD extras. I mean, it is it is the place where beautiful anecdotes and great human stories that don't push narrative go to go to live. And we, you know, there were definitely a few moments where things went in and out of the movie for us. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't I think ultimately everything that we felt needed to be in the film made the movie um, and everything that's going to be in our DVD extra package. There are some incredible stories. I, I, here's a good example. Tower was a place where art was instrumental. They had art departments in the back of every one of these stores, and they had artists that were building displays out of foam core, and they were building practicals for for in-store promotion, and they were doing it all for the love of the art, the passion, and the music. And that section is 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 just it's not something that really fit into the narrative flow of the movie. Um, another thing was was in stores, the in-store performance element of Tower Records. I mean, you talk to so many of these artists and they say the fact that I could go into a Tower Records and play a show for my fans, you know, amongst the racks or in the parking lot. It was one of those things that absolutely defined what this company was. And we touch on it. We touch on both of those things. Um, we obviously have a lot more material on those. We always joke that we could have done a Tower Records miniseries just because we feel it's it's such a, a such an incredible company and such a deep human story with so many threads to pull on. Um, but, the, you know, those are a couple things that we were able to touch on but not get into as much as we probably would have liked for the sake of the film. The one thing that meant a lot to me that wasn't covered but I imagine that it was there somewhere amongst the discussions or on the cutting room floor or maybe in those DVD extras was the importance of that zine rack and just the the way that Tower Records was able to take small zines and bring them around the world really meant a lot to me personally. Well, you know, the first Rolling Stones magazine was, was, was brought to, to Tower San Francisco, hand-walked in. From what we understand, um, you know, that that magazine starting in San Francisco and Tower starting in San Francisco, those two ships kind of rose together. And I think Russ prided himself on the fact that he wanted to, you know, incorporate that world and empower his people, especially when Pulse magazine came to fruition and they made their own in-house magazine that they really wanted to not only sell music, but sell products where people discussed music they wanted to forward the discussion uh and it definitely was something i mean we touch on pulse magazine and its importance in our in our documentary um but yeah the the it was the place you went to read about music and not just experience it buy it and talk to other people about it so yeah it was it definitely was an important facet uh, of tower records yeah just that they were able to encapsulate music video books, magazines, just so many forms of media well before the Best Buys of the world or before your local bookstore started to branch out into other media. It was just such like the one-stop place for so many great ideas to be able to just kind of go in and spend your money or go in and talk with other like-minded people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was another big thing that we really realized in this documentary process was this wasn't just a place about music. This was a place where people socialized, where they interacted, where they met, where they hung out, sometimes not even buying a record. They, you know, it was more about bumping into somebody or having a human experience, which, you know, I mean, look for my children in the next generation, it's just, I, I, I hope it's different. I hope they find their outlet for those human experiences and those, those interactions on a broader scale. But the world's changed drastically, and I think that it, it'll it'll never be obviously what it was. All things must pass, and you know I think we all kind of are mourning 
those of us that made this movie and, and put our hearts and souls into it, we're mourning an era that's that's gone, that we're never going to get back, that will never be the same. There'll be certain versions of it, like Amoeba and other places, but um, this was really a, a special a special time and a special place. So tell me about the documentary proper. Like, where did it premiere, and what have those experiences been like for you going around with the film? It's been a pretty incredible six months with this movie. Um, we premiered at, at South by Southwest in March. Um, you know, that was always our target fe- uh, festival for the film. We always knew that that festival with, with its cross sections with music, uh, was just the perfect place for this to land. Uh, and we were honored and excited when they, when they accepted us there. Um, and you know, everywhere we've gone, I mean, when we went to Seattle, um, we had, I want to say 75 ex-employees of the Seattle store show up to the screening, some of them without tickets. They drove a yellow tower van that one of the guys bought from the store when it went bankrupt and had kept in running order. Um, we have a picture of Colin and I and 60 employees in front of this big yellow tower van that one of these guys cherishes as, as his last thing that he's holding on to from his tower life. Um, and to take this movie home to Sacramento for us I think that that was a real pinnacle moment. We were able to, and you know, Russ is 90. He's not at an age where travel is easy. Um, we, we really wanted him to come to South by Southwest, but it was just, it wasn't in the cards for that, that time that we were there. So the first time Russ saw the movie on the big screen was in Sacramento in the tower theater, which is the theater in which his father had the pharmacy where it all started in the 1940s. And for us to sit in that theater with him, and 20 of what we've uh, fondly coined his generals watching this movie. It was just a, an unbelievable experience. A few of the ex-employees and cast members from our film were actually yelling at each other during the film, you know, pissed off at each other. I think at one point, you know, uh, Mark Vitisich, who's got this incredible mustache, he screams at the top of his lungs, screw you, Heidi. Uh, actually, no, I think he said, fuck you, Heidi. Uh, and then Heidi turned around and said, love you, Sid. And I mean, the, you know, it was just like our own little mystery theater with these, you know, these people watching themselves and watching their lives and watching their story unfold. And that was pretty incredible. And now on October 15th here in L.A., we get to have our premiere here as it's been leaking into the <laughs> into the Internet and into the public eye. Uh, we are actually transforming Tower Records sunset back into its original form. We're repainting the building. Um, we are throwing a huge premiere party there. Um, we're going to have the Eagles of Death Metal, Josh Hame's band, playing in the parking lot. Uh, and it's going to be a little bit of a three-ring circus with an end store back at Tower Records for one night only. And to get Russ back to Tower Sunset with that building back in you know our hands for 24 hours, it's it's literally it's just been this this gratifying tour after seven years of of taking him place to place to place and and really like getting to see him go through what I think is one of the most incredible emotional journeys I've seen someone you know go through and witness um, he's he's getting to kind of see his baby again one last time which is really incredible for us as filmmakers. So as you're doing this, I imagine you probably have one eye on the future. Where's the next thing? What's the next thing for you? We're trying to figure that out. Colin and I are, you know, we we love the music genre. Music docs are hard to get made. Documentaries are hard to get made. I think we're in a bit of a golden era in documentaries, which is great. So we've got our hands in a lot of stuff. I think this has been all consuming for us for the last six months, just getting this movie done, getting it delivered, getting it into theaters. Um, I think for us, you know, it could be scripted. It could be documentary. We haven't committed to anything yet, but we're, we've definitely got some, some projects on the, on the plate that we're very excited about that hopefully we'll be able to share with people uh, very soon. Now, is there a good place for people to keep up with the documentary when it's coming out on VOD or DVD, all that kind of stuff? If there's local screening still, what's happening with that? Yeah, if people want to keep up with the film, you know, we've got uh, our website, towerrecordsdoc.com, which we're updating constantly with all the different theaters and cities that we're going to be expanding into theatrically. Uh, we'll also be up there announcing um, when the movie's coming out on DVD. 
uh, when people can buy it on iTunes, uh, when it'll be available uh, on other formats, television, et cetera, as soon as those things uh, are done and, and, and put in place. But that's probably the best way to keep up with the movie. I think we've pretty much swooped up everything, Tower Records, doc.com or tower records doc instagram twitter everywhere so you know we've got we've got a good blanket out there if people a good net out there if people want to uh want to keep up on on the movie and kind of where we're where we're headed with it and when it can when it can get their house and or, or their theater near them talking about all things must pass so carol would you recommend all things must pass oh uh, yeah i would definitely i think it's a neat story even if your own story isn't embedded in tower records and it's neat just to see people so positive about making something and about the effects of it in people's lives yeah i'd be really curious to hear somebody who is coming at this with no memory of tower what they would think i think it's such an effective documentary that i think that most people would probably find it interesting and enjoy it unless you have like very specific things about i don't know you don't like documentaries about retail or <laughs> you know, corporate bastards or something like that although you can get angry at the corporate bastards in this yeah, we did a, a special recently where I interviewed the guy who wrote um, "I Lost It" at the video store, and there's so many stories in there. You know, I mentioned suspect video earlier, and in that one, they talk a lot about Kim's video in New York, and you know, what did we lose when we lost Kim's video, and what did we lose when we lost the mom and pop video stores? You know, did things like the corporate behemoth of Blockbuster, and. Tower, for me, was in this kind of interesting place because they were a big store, but they didn't necessarily – they left room, it felt like, for other stores. And, you know, Because there was a Tower Records on S South University, and just a few doors down, there's a Warehouse Records. And across town, there's Wazoo, and there's school kids, and there's uh, uh, even like a, a discount, like Sam Goody type store, and there's other used record stores around there. So it wasn't like they were coming in and eating everybody's lunch, as opposed to a blockbuster where it just felt like they would come in and just destroy everything around it, just like you know, a nuclear bomb a place and then build a store. Yeah, it's a really interesting model of growth. But I just feel like, you know, we've lost so much when it comes to losing a store like a tower. It, sometimes I feel like we've even lost stuff when it comes to losing something, and I, I feel horrible saying this, but even losing a blockbuster, it still feels like we've lost something as far as this whole idea of browsing. And Blockbuster wasn't the kind of place where you go in and you talk to the clerk about movies, because I will admit, most of my coworkers at Blockbuster did not know a lot of stuff about movies. There are the occasional you know, exceptions to that rule, but most people are just there working a retail job, as opposed to something like a Suspect or a Kim's, where that was your way of life. 
And the thing I really get from this tower documentary was it was such a way of life for so many people, not just the people in the corporate office, but everybody out on the street. So this whole idea of not having a place, and I don't think I, I know I shot the shit with a couple of the people that worked at tower, but for me, it was more someplace that you would go with friends and say, Hey, have you seen this? Hey, have you heard this? You know, you go over to a listening station and be like, hey, check this out. And we don't have that anymore. You know, I know it's easy to send links, but it's just as easy to ignore them. There is something about a physical space, meeting people there and and being there together and sharing these things. Yeah, and just having some place to go. Sometimes I feel like we're going to have like an over-the-edge kind of thing coming up here soon where we have no place to go. I'm just content being home where I can browse my record library and go to Amazon Prime and download the next whatever, as opposed to actually getting off my ass and going out someplace and just doing the shopping, you know, just checking stuff out. I definitely recommend this movie. And the thing that I kind of like about it, I mean, like when I first heard, oh, Colin Hanks is going to be doing this documentary about Tower Records. I was just like, well, I'm not really sure. I like Colin Hanks. I like Tom Hanks. And I like Colin Hanks a lot. I have liked a lot of the shows that he's been in. He was in one called The Good Guys that I liked a lot and unfortunately was canceled. But I was just like, okay, I don't know. When a celebrity turns around and makes a documentary, I'm not really 100% Uh, sure about it right off the bat because I'm like, okay, because there were too many self-serving people. And I'm just like, okay, how is he going to kind of turn this around and make this about him and that kind of stuff? But then when I think about some other documentaries, things like uh, Keanu Reeves' documentary about showing things in digital versus film. And it's nice, though, when I think about that one, I'm just like, okay, I think... Keanu was more using his clout as a celebrity to get this thing done and out there. And I definitely think that Colin Hanks is doing the exact same thing. This is not the Colin Hanks show. He never shows up in the documentary. No, I didn't realize it was him until I saw his name on the screen. Right. And then I was like, is it the same one? Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. And I think he's able to use his celebrity to push this thing out there a lot more than a regular quote-unquote documentary directory. Like, you know, we talked last week about An Open Secret, and it's like, okay, I know kind of of Amy J. Berg, but she's not, like, the household name. I wouldn't say Colin Hanks is a household name yet, but, you know, his dad definitely is. But, you know, Amy J. Berg, having her name above the the title, I'm just like, okay, yeah, I, I remember deliver us from evil but she's not to that level you know like a michael moore is a celebrity documentary maker and he became a celebrity because of his documentaries as opposed to this colin hanks who is a celebrity who makes documentaries and i think it's kind of the right way to do it and i think he's really kind of giving back with this documentary i also was thinking um think that he brought his experience with a very particular kind of Hollywood storytelling because it does have a narrative arc and it has a very Hollywood narrative arc of like the scruffy young guy with the idea um, uses a lot of elbow grease and makes everything into a success and then the bad guys come in and the third act but then it ends on a moment of hope and it is very effective and works really well. And I think is totally appropriate to the story and it just looks nice. It looks happy. (laughs) Well, it looks nice. And the level of interviews that they get, I mean, I don't know if there were a lot of people who they weren't able to interview for the documentary, but it seemed like they really had the key players when it came to the story of tower itself. And then having those celebrity appearances didn't hurt either. Yeah. Yep. And this was the first time, uh, and I I mentioned this to uh, Sean Stewart, this is the first time I've really seen Bruce Springsteen in a documentary where he seems fully engaged, and he just seemed really excited to be talking about Tower. Yeah, I could imagine him being on the phone going, what, this is about Tower? I'm there. I have so many things to say about Tower. (laughs) 
And hearing, I mean, the stories about Elton John in Tower, it was just like, I had no idea. And to me, it was the right level, the the right amount of having these celebrity stories. It was great having Dave Grohl there talking about how he worked at Tower Records. And then seeing the cover for Nevermind blown out as one of these you know, famous covers that they would do for for Tower artwork. It just really brought stuff home for me, and it's like, wow, that, that it just really, really worked. And yeah, those interviews with Russ Solomon were just, man, it, really great, great things. And then seeing how he changed over the years, seeing the corporate video, I was so happy about that. Yeah. And especially, you know, do we have to worry about these uh, MP3s and that kind of stuff? Oh, no. Figure something out at the time. We're good. And, you know, his We're accountant, good. Bud Abbott, is just holding his head. And we figure something out now. God, yeah, that was such an emergency. And unfortunately, nothing, you know, other than, uh, until the iTunes model came along, there wasn't a way for a little while there to monetize anything. Sure, you still had people out there buying their CDs and stuff, but I've got to be honest, I haven't bought a CD in... I don't know how many years, you know, it has literally been that long. I'm about to buy one, but only because I can't find it digitally. Yeah, the last few albums that I bought have all been digital downloads. And it's just, uh, you know, I I asked you right off the bat how much money or how often did you shop at record stores. And that was my primary thing. I wasn't as bad as Andy Feudner, where he would skip lunch in order to have money to buy a new record at the end of every week. But I would say I was close. Yeah, I was certainly going to the record store every week. I didn't necessarily buy something, but I always went. Yeah, and you went and you found out stuff. I know for me, like looking up at the the new release board and seeing what was coming... That was a huge part of it, because you didn't have any other means of knowing when somebody was going to be dropping a record, other than that, you know, paltry sometimes board. And if it was an artist that, you know, you're interested in, and the guy who's writing up the board isn't interested in, then it's going to be a complete surprise for you when you when that album comes in. It's like, oh my god, they recorded a new one? Oh, okay, great. You know, like, I remember... Uh, going to Tower and, and you know, f- constantly finding new John Zorn records. It's like, oh, because that guy records like a motherfucker, but it's just like you never know when something new is going to come out. Thank you very much, Carol, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about these docs with me. So what kind of stuff is going on over at the Cultural Gutter? Uh, we have a new co-screen editor, Beth Watkins from Beth Loves Bollywood, and she'll be writing about filmy things. And then personally, I have a story coming out in the Fox Spirit Books anthology, Things in the Dark. My story is called Thomas Hobbes versus the Mole People. Is that a nonfiction? It's fiction, yep. Oh, okay. I was really hoping. <laughs> I wish it were. I don't know, maybe maybe it's true and I just happened to tap into it in some Lovecraftian way. The fires of Azagoth <laughs> were... Well, very cool. Where can people find you and your work? You can find me at The Cultural Gutter. It's www.theculturalgutter.com, and you can find us on Facebook as The Cultural Gutter and on Twitter at Cultural Gutter. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back Wednesday with a regularly scheduled episode and a few more times this month with some more specials. If you like what we're doing, go on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate some of your hard-earned cash. Take some of the money you'd be spending on that new Pearl Jam CD single and uh, push it our way. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm looking for one that I can't find. The one where the guitar plays so fine, because that's the only song that my baby likes to hear. High and low, everywhere I know I can't find the one that my baby loves So tell me, what am I gonna do? Cause that's the only song that my baby likes to hear It goes...
through the records an hour or two And I've about decided what I've got to do I'm gonna get me a guitar and learn to play I'll serenade my baby night and day Then I'll play the song that my baby likes to hear I'll go Here, a stack of records there. I got the records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm looking for one that I can't find. The one where the guitar plays so fine, cause that's the only song that my baby likes to hear. It goes. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.